Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. We've got loads of things to uh, sprinkle on your Wheaties this morning. It's a nice day today, but apparently it's going to be windy in Melbourne. But if you're podcasting, it doesn't matter. If uh, you're listening to it later... It doesn't matter if you're in another place. It doesn't matter. So, uh, but Melbourneites, you probably want to uh, be careful of the wind. Uh, I remember when I used to live in the bush, the winds were the days that you had to worry because branches would fall on your head. Uh, it's a funny thing, the weather. It can kill you. Uh, today we're going to uh, hear from uh, Andrew Joel Martin. He's a stevedore down at uh, Webb uh, Westock. At Cube, there's going to be a strike, momentous, a strike over the uh, weekend, and we're going to hear from him at eight o'clock. Important stuff. Uh, before that, we're going to go to the Coonahan Gallery. There's a really interesting uh, exhibition, two exhibitions, in fact, that are on at the moment. The Coonahan Gal- Gallery. It's part of. Uh, it's the uh, uh, down at um, uh, Moreland uh, Town Hall. Uh, it's on Sydney Road um, and it uh, features uh, the work of uh, women in fanzines as well as uh, in um, screen printing or the political stuff that was being done uh, from the 70s on to the uh, present day really. But uh, Wendy Black, who was part of Red Letter Press, uh, gave the opening uh, remarks uh, and uh, I then had a chance to have a chat with Wendy Black uh, and... Uh, it's a, it was an absolute fulcrum of uh, exciting political uh, uh, collaboration, that period of the 70s and 80s and uh, later on. So uh, it was worth going down there to, one, hear about the exhibition because you should probably go down there and have a look, uh, but also later have a few words with the woman herself, uh, one of the uh, people who were actually involved in some of the... She, she mentioned some of the uh, posters and uh, they'll come to mind. You, they were incredibly effective and they were part of a thrust in um, politics that uh, is uh, probably underrated and uh, not understood because as uh, as the 70s and 80s are now being um, made into mainstream um, soap opera tripe crap. Uh, anyway, so we're going to go back there. Later on, we've got This Is The Week That Was, and uh, Don Sutherland's going to come and talk to us about uh, wages 
and uh, the rules are broken. But before we get on with uh, today's business... Join the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice and add your voice to the call for change to refugee policy. Demand Australia's political leaders to abandon the current harsh and unjust policies and provide permanent protection for refugees. Stand with people from all over Melbourne. Demand the evacuation of Manus and Nauru and end the cruelty. Meet at the State Library of Victoria on the 25th of March at 1.30pm. Palm Sunday Walk for Justice is a 3CR supporter. Everyone and all, welcome to the Coonahan Gallery in Brunswick. My name is Victor Grisp. I'm the gallery curator and your MC for the evening. To formally acknowledge country and begin ceremonial proceedings, I would like to invite the councillor responsible for the arts, Mark Riley, to the microphone. So please welcome councillor Mark Riley. Thank you, Victor. Thank you, everyone. So tonight, in conjunction with the the month of women's history that is currently being celebrated. The, the gallery here, the Coonahan Gallery, launches two exhibitions, Agency Inc. and Travelling the Alpha Layer, which is down in Gallery 2. And with Agency Inc. in the first gallery, it's a, the personal and political imprint and it's curated by the gallery's own Catherine Connolly. The exhibition looks at the work of eight female identifying artists and makers in alternative print forms across generations. I have to tell you I'm one of those generations who've seen some of this work earlier. And with the focus it has on local artists, printmakers, zine makers, and the exhibition provides a glimpse into the highly productive print, zine, poster and paper forms activated by women from the 60s right through to today. And I have to say I particularly like the promotional one where we don't get mad, get elected, Although I have to say, having been in the job for 15 months, I possibly was being mad and getting elected. So, um, but not being a woman, I'm not. I'm sure there's many other readings of that poster. Um, we're lucky to have with us this evening a great local exponent of the print tradition, Wendy Black, and I look forward to hearing from her uh, shortly when she comments on the displays this evening. And I'm sure she'll do that more eloquently than I can. Although, um, as I was saying to her, I've got some connection to some of these, this kind of artwork um, when I was involved with the Australian Lesbian Gay Archives back in the early 80s and through to the 90s and beyond, where a lot of these printmaking works were a really important part of the collection. And it's a community archive that's here in Melbourne, and it's a national collection and one of the few community archives in the world. So it's kind of nice to be able to see it celebrated in this way tonight. In contrast, in Gallery 2, we're moving into the print and electronic media with the travelling the alpha layer and exploring the digital realms and self-representation through the practice of female video artists. The, vide the videos in the exhibition have evolved from frequent discussions on the potentials within the digital screen space for female artists who use their faces and bodies to critique contemporary visual culture. The exhibitions are accompanied by a rich offering of public programs. So I really like the way these exhibitions have come together tonight because someone speaking uh, from an elder end of the community, it's kind of interesting looking at where 
um, print and visual art has evolved to, and it's a great way of um, doing it tonight. So I really commend the gallery on, on bringing this together and, and also celebrating women in the process. I'm sure you'll agree that it's an impressive array of options for our cultural calendar here heading into Easter. And don't forget that these two impressive exhibitions, which I can see are certainly worth spending more time with, um, are going to be on during that period. And I congratulate the artists, and it now gives me great pleasure to declare the exhibition officially open. Thank you. Uh, it's now my great pleasure to invite to the microphone artist Wendy Black. Many of you will be already familiar with Wendy as a key member and screen printer from the Red Letter Press. Some of you may also have seen Wendy's work featured in the excellent exhibition Don't Be Too Polite, a survey of socio-political printmaking from Melbourne-based artist collectives from 1977 to 2001, mounted at the Ian Potter Museum of Art last year. Thanks, Victor. Um, yes, I'm a, a Brunswick artist, um, and I've been here um, since the 70s, really. Um, I started after art school in early 70s when, uh, say, the University of Melbourne had Gestetners and Roneographs, which were like um, fool's cap, which is the equivalent, probably, of a, um, a modern-day printer for, for all people making zines. Um, I came along and uh, learnt screen printing and had these great big screens and I kind of felt like I changed the scale of um, poster making overnight in the early 70s. So I started out um, with Ed Vinyl and Angela G um, and we called ourselves DAG and we did a whole lot of um, very quick posters for bands and theatre companies um, and did very irreverent things and they were very... Um, yeah, not, not terribly finished off. Not like you, you see here behind me here when I got to Red Letter in the early 80s where I was doing very much uh, finished, finished artwork, um, 10 colour, um, 500 edition, taking time, the benefit of time, research and, you know, having a distribution around the Pacific Rim so it's just slightly larger distribution than around uh, the uh, CBD. Um, also along that time, I think 1976, I went to the Tin Sheds um, Earthworks Poster Collective, and that's a key word for the 70s, Poster Collective, because we're all collectives and we were uh, consciousness raising. And uh, I was there with Carol Porter, who's got works in the room behind me, and uh, we were doing a week-long screen print workshop for political activists. So that probably gives you a feeling of what it was like. Um, I was doing a poster on, um, an anti-marriage poster on the patriarchy. Um, and, and, so, and uh, it had sort of slogans on it like, um, I've got enough on my hands without a ring. Um, so, you know, in, in the days of pro-marriage, it's, you know, nice to look back on these kind of what we were against, what we were for. So um, uh, Carol was doing a poster for Circus Oz and uh, Circus Oz started out as a soapbox circus. So it was a political circus, again, consciousness raising. Um, and I noticed in 
in here too. We've got Arlene Texter Queen. Circus is a great metaphor for dispersing political ideas. Uh, political movements have used circuses all the time. Um, they also use the slogan. And uh, I can remember some slogans from the 70s, just to take you back there. <laughs> Sometimes the best man for, for the job is a woman. Save the Franklin Dam. Save, save the Franklin Dam the government. <laughs> Don't log rainforest. Rock against racism. Free the Fairly Five. Any familiar to anyone? Stop the war in Vietnam. Smash US imperialism. A woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. <laughs> and uh, don't get mad, get elected. So again, Carol Porter, a, 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 great, um, a great slogan, which brings up um, images of uh, Emily's List, Joan Kerner, first woman Premier of Victoria, Julia Gillard, first woman PM. So it became uh, a very good thing for... Um, getting equal opportunity in uh, politics for women. Um, also inside, um, we've got a Wiridjuri woman, Charlotte Allingham, fusing personal and uh, political in her digital prints. So again, another 70s slogan, the personal is political. So everything you did in the 70s was kind of political, even if it was personal. So still is. Still is. And so that kind of... Um, changed her, um, history into her story. Mm -hmm. So her story became a very important thing for women. Um, I should say Vale um, Zelda de Prano. She is being remembered here in the Brunswick Town Hall in a couple of weeks. Um, she was the co-founder of the Women's Liberation Movement, Victoria Branch. And uh, if anyone got women into the public in wage opportunity, equal wages... Um, personal struggles, political struggles, she did. Um, also, um, yeah, so also in this exhibition you'll see uh, personal struggles because this um, exhibition is the personal and the political and sometimes they, um, they separate and sometimes they're, they're part of it. So you'll see uh, personal struggles with illness, Rachel Ch Ch Chillers and Rachel Angs personal struggle with marginalisation as a um, Asian Australian in the zines. Um, we've also got women exploring self-image in the video, um, in the video format, navigating through that alpha la um, layer. Is it an alpha, alpha male layer? Is it, uh, is it something to do with RGB? I'm not sure. You'll have to go in and make up your own mind on, on those digital portraits. Um, it reminds me of the Andy Warhol screen tests where you got a, um, a subject in front of a static video camera um, over time, boredom, frustration, showing all kinds of emotion, um, who actually reveals the true portrait of the person. Um, you might see it in there tonight. Um, you can ask yourself, is the artist concerned about the male gaze? Um, or is it simply an exploration of self? Um, but I invite you to go in and ask yourself those questions. And another um, 1970s phrase, does she have anything to say? And yes, I think she does. Hi 
this is Katie from Little Birdie and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We need your help to support public radio and your local music scene. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we we were at the Coolahan Gallery down in uh, Sydney Road. Uh, Wendy Black, I actually got a chance to have a word with Wendy where she could actually talk a little bit more about the experiences of being involved in what was an incredibly vibrant and important part of the political scene in Melbourne in the 80s. Uh, I know it started in the 70s, but... Um, it uh, flowed on and had this whole uh, integrated uh, feel about it and it incorporated the arts to such an extreme that uh, includes community radio, of course. So I just had to go and talk to her. Well, you know, can you tell me uh, how, in- how important Red Letter was to you as an artist? Well, as an artist, it gave me um, some financial stability for a couple of years where I could um, produce work that I thought was important and uh, I chose global issues um, and I worked on um, a nuclear free Pacific which was actually six months of work um, it, I was teaching a young woman from Vanuatu where a conference was going to be held and uh, the posters were going back there and we had to produce it in English, French and Bislama language, so it was quite a... Very a, hot topic too. A very hot topic at the time. There was a lot of um, French testing of uh, mirror ad hoc going on and all kinds of things, and, you know, it was just a general big issue. And the other um, topic issue I dealt with was um, Antarctica becoming a world park, um, and that took a lot of time. And I noticed in the Bob Hawke documentary the other day um, that it, it was mentioned as quite a, quite an issue. It was a worldwide issue because, you know, there were countries wanting to carve up the, this last pristine wilderness. Um, and I suppose at that sort of time, I, I virtually became an environmental crusader when, when I had the time to research these um, issues and realising what was going on in the world. And the greenhouse effect was a, um, a big deal at the time. And, um, you know... It, to come on to global warming and climate change of all sorts but uh, you know we were slowly these issues were percolating to the surface and um, I really want to deal with it. Now, um, so, so Red Letter I mean it occurs to me that a lot of things were going on at that time 76 you were saying moving on to the 80s uh, by being a printmaker with a political uh, bent that particular group of people were able to, you made a living, but it was because it connected into a whole lot of other places that were also fighting, or, and films that were being made, and radio stations. And Yes, I think there was a much bigger network of things. Um, there were certainly, you know, people worked in collectives and, uh, you know, committees, I guess, and... There was, yeah, lots of ways of producing things. So it could have been postcards, it could have been a radio show, it could have been all kinds of ways of uh, getting messages out there. And uh, I just felt we were part of a bigger network of community action. Um, You know, there might be a protest that was leaving Melbourne University and going through RMIT and somehow everyone knew about it and just joined it, you know. So there was kind of issues going on and that could have been stop the nuclear powers or you know it, there was there was 
all kinds of things that were, were happening. And um, I think you had to pick your battles. Um, red letter, um, we had, you know, committee meetings, collective meetings about what issues we were going to um, address. And some people chose local issues like free childcare or, or you know, a Turkish women's collective or all kinds of things. Um, but I think you just had to choose where your heart lay. And I, I sort of had these global issues and I realised I could get the posters out to Vanuatu and you know do that nuclear free thing and I could go out and do the same thing with um, Antarctica so they were my two big things I did there. All the meantime I set up an access workshop there which was open to the public so I was teaching people by learning by doing basically so a group would come in who had never printed before and they would make their own t-shirts or a poster for a particular thing with a bit of guidance from us um, and I would just get them to that stage where they were printing and just, you know, I suppose I was a bit of a mother hen, I'd be just sort of over the shoulder occasionally. But it's a bit punk, isn't it? Because it's supposed to be hands-on, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Like, we just, um, when I first started out, we just did things in the most... Uh, ridiculous way when I think back we'd just go out into the back lane with screen and expose with the sun and wash out in a toilet block and come back and print on a table and you know there was no um, you know industrial setup. By the time I got to Red Letter they had uh, uh, come down from Moreland Road where they'd been Brunswick Unemployment Group bug and breadline posters and they suddenly got a bit of funding and they moved to Victoria Street, Brunswick and we had to move this one-armed squeegee in through a window of a flat to set it up and, and an offset machine. So we had basically a two a double storey, two bedroom apartment to set up a printing, community printing place and um, it worked brilliantly but you know um, we were then working on big machines with um, uh, racks that could hold 250 so we had the means to produce large numbers. Heady days? Very heady days, yeah. There was a, um, lots of, yeah, very labour intensive, um, you know, it, it was like being in a rowing machine for 16 really? hours sometimes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, what was uh, I saying? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were also, the other thing that was really interesting is over time you guys made high art. Yeah, basically, yeah, because I'd come out of um, fine art painting in RMIT where I learned how to silkscreen print, but, you know, as a fine art additioning print, um, I then sort of used that to kind of um, print band posters, you know, 500 two-colour or, or the Pram Factory theatre show or um, all kinds of, yeah, all kinds of posters, May Day posters, um, anything that was going, um, we're doing these quite large runs that would go into the middle of the night, we'd be printing, and um, and it was all pretty much hands-on, and sometimes we had to post them up in the streets ourselves, so we did the whole process, we designed, we cut the stencils, we made the screens, we printed two or three colours, 500, and then went around the next day and posted them up in the street, and that was considered the job. Yeah, and um, humour. Um, well, yes, well, dag printing, I came out of um, art school with this kind of irreverent looking at, you know, fine art as being a bit too serious, and so 
I got into sort of using puns and all kinds of um, wit witticisms. And, uh, Which is political in itself. Oh, indeed. There was a Bringing lot... down the edifice. Yeah. Well, look, you know, Soapbox Circus and all of that, that, that was all very witty stuff. Um, Captain Matchbox, you know, there was lots of, you know, um, just people having fun with it. Um, and, uh, you know, we were very irreverent. And, you know, we had DAG calendars we brought out every month and then every year, and they were just what to do. Um, you know, that month, and we would go around, we had subscribers, and we would take them around, and they would pay for their monthly calendar of what's on. It was just a screen printed poster we did on a kitchen table, you know. that's. I mean, that's how kind of low-tech it was. Yeah, and how humorous it was, and how involved everybody was prepared to be. Yes, yeah, and it was considered just all just part of what you did, you know, it wasn't kind of... A job. Or oh, now it's alive. Uh, now it's it's alive. in a gallery and it's... And now, well, that's why you have to be a little bit forgiving, not so much with these posters that they've got in this collection because these are very much the finished products that went into lounge rooms and, and not necessarily in the streets, but those early street posters, you've done 500 and sometimes one will turn up. The Wendy Black poster collections in the State Library, about 48 of them from RMIT... I think you'd find some of those will be misregistered, you know, just not terribly well made, but you've got to realise that there was a time deadline we were making them to. Um, sometimes um, Bash Fraser Day was a good one. Um, it, it's, uh, it's in the uh, catalogue called Got the Message, 50 Years of Political Posters from the Art Gallery of Ballarat. Um, Bash Fraser Day, Festival of the Oppressed. It was on Thursday. I think they asked me on Tuesday to make the poster. And, you know, all I did was rip Malcolm Fraser's face in half and put the, put the words in that little bit. And it was out the next day. So it was kind of very spontaneous art making. Um, very exciting. And exciting. Um, didn't think very much about design. Um, later on, we had that time to reflect on all of that and it got, you know, became very... Um, well, if you went to the Tin Sheds and saw the Earthworks Poster Collective, they were very um, well-made, well-thought-out posters with a lot of time yeah. and research. Now, there are a couple of collectives that were all female and this made a difference, didn't it? Yeah, there was dual posters. Um, DAG were all female. We kind of didn't kind of make it a big deal. We just were probably women who happened to be printing. Yeah, um, but it was, it's more that you had you were allowed to be the ones who were movers and shakers. Oh, yeah, we were the decision makers. Yeah. And I think Jill Posters, Bloody Good Graphics, um, that was Julia Church and Kath Walters, um, Carol Wilson, um, Julia Shields, um, everyone from another planet um, were kind of fairly much women-based. Uh, Red Letter went through phases of being having a lot of women there. Um, when they amalgamated and became Red Planet, uh, a lot of uh, women like um, Carol Porter and Maria Strocci and um, there's one here in the foyer, um, Di Diddle, she was there too. Um, lots of women who were producing things. I was working with Sue Anderson at Red Letter. 
um, she was working on a poster called Yuck, It's Been Irradiated. So irradiated food, you know. I mean, these you know, issues came and went. And, and they, you know, at some stage they were kind of very important for, you know, the general Well, populace. they actually remain important too. Yes, yeah. I mean, every battle you win um, yes. um, can be lost. And, right. and we see that with equal wage uh, parity. Oh, that's we, not going to go away. And um, yeah, and uh, I once did a put a thing on the eight-hour day monument, um, and I put there how dare we lose what they had won. And you know, you, you think you've got all these wonderful yeah. working conditions, and uh, they can be taken away in an instant, um, and without you know strong unions, um, it will happen. Thanks. Mr. Pressman, here's some news. You can print it if you choose. Just to show the times have changed a lot. Though it may sound strange to you, it is absolutely true. You can believe it or not. Since making more bee became all the rage Has even got into the old bird cage My canary has circles under his eyes Under his eyes He used to whistle a prisoner's song Now he just snake-ups the whole day long My canary has circles under his eyes His only pals are the meadow lark Just a tiny sparrow but I'm afraid when he's in the park He leaves the straight and narrow I raised this bird in a mess so strict Now I feel certain I'm being tricked My canary has circles under his eyes Just a tiny sparrow But I'm afraid when he's in the park He leaves the straight and narrow I raised this bird in a manner so strict Now I feel certain I'm being tricked My canary has circles under his eyes
making love became came all the rage As he got into the old bird cage My canary had circles under his eyes My canary had circles under his eyes Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen and you're listening to 3CR yeah, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and that was, of course, the immortal Captain Matchbox with My Canary Has Circles Under His Eyes. And uh, Wendy Black, who was talking to us, was had mentioned uh, at the beginning uh, the commemoration for The Wake for Zelda Deprano. That's on the 23rd, Friday the 23rd, uh, at 10am at the Brunswick Town Hall, if you were planning to go. Uh, we're now moving on to a very important thing that's happening right at the moment. It's uh, a strike that's down at uh, the Web Dock at Cube West, uh, Web Dock West. I had a chance to talk to uh, a stevedore down there, a delegate for the MUA, the Maritime Union of Australia. Uh, he was able to tell us about what's going on. Dispute for over two years and have gone without a pay rise for three years. Uh, but there's more to it. So let's hear. Okay, so um, you're, you're a stevedore at Cube and uh, there's going to be a shutdown over the weekend at Cube. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, that's correct. There is a strike this weekend. Uh, it's been coming to a head for a long time. We've been in negotiations with Cube for two years. They haven't given us a pay rise in three of those years. Um, but there are a number of outstanding issues that have come to the fore, and they are the use of 12-hour shifts. Cube have manipulated the current agreement, which has no real stipulations on the limit of 12-hour shifts, or certainly not articulated very well in the agreement. Um, they've also removed a roster we had which allowed for planned time off for permanence, which was a seven weeks on, one week off roster. They simply removed that, saying there weren't enough hours to justify that. Well, that's simply not true. Cuba won a number of contracts recently, and if anything, there's a labour shortage. So there are a number of outstanding issues, certainly um, around the conditions of working hours and remuneration. They've taken all back pay off the table at the moment, uh, and they've also taken off any pay offers at all. And they're also threatening to terminate the agreement. So this dispute is could be quite significant. It's certainly significant for the waterfront. Oh, and it's and significant for it all the will. workers. I mean, let's go back to the 12 yeah. hours. When you talk about the 12-hour shifts, get, give people some idea of what they're talking about. I had the impression that, in fact, sometimes people are working 12-hour shifts and then they almost immediately have to go back on again. Uh, yes, the shifts are completely irregular. Um, if you're a casual at Cube, you're given no roster at all. We get a text message at 4pm every day notifying us of a shift the next day. But further to that, you can work an eight-hour shift and only be given an eight-hour rest period between the next shift. Um, and it's quite common to work a day shift, then an evening shift, then a day shift, then an afternoon shift, and then back to a day shift. Now, we're so talking about very dangerous work. Yeah, yeah, this is really dangerous work. Oh, Absolutely. We're talking about general Vulcan cargo, 
and automotive and heavy machinery. So, of course, yeah, it's very dangerous. Um, a lot of this works old-style stevedoring, where you're working under the hook, lifting out uh, steel beams, lifting out bulk commodities like paper, um, which is bagged. So this is tonnes of cargo, that's, um, and it's quite precarious work. And, of course, if you're working shift work uh, and you're fatigued, well, we know that that affects your cognitive and motor skills quite severely. Now, there's been deaths at this work site, and uh, I also had the impression that often when there are deaths in a work site like this, this is often at the last hour of the person's shift. Yes, that's correct. One of the deaths occurred in, in one of the last hours of a, a 12-night shift, can imagine. People don't like to talk about it. Um, it's a pretty traumatic experience yeah. to go through to see one of your workmates killed. Yeah. But uh, certainly I work with people who've had to pull bodies up that have been crushed by steel out of the hull of a ship oh, and God. are just a mangled mess. And it's something like that you, you can never get out of your mind. And there was actually a death there last week, not on the job, but somebody had a heart attack on the job and died the next day in hospital. And that underlines the... Uh, precarious nature of night shifts and the load it's putting on people physically, mentally, emotionally and psychologically. It just um, wears you down. And uh, that's the death of a, a man who was um, in the later stages of his working life, but it was a completely unnecessary death. Now, you 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 guys are going to uh, do a shutdown. You're, you... It, it, this is not because you're cantankerous workers asking for outrageous things. You've been trying to negotiate stuff with uh, Cube for quite a while, haven't you? Yeah, that's correct. We've been two years in negotiations. Cube have uh, only met delegates on several occasions, um, but not really with any earnest degree of seeking a resolution, and they don't give paid meetings their delegates. So Cube have not argued in good faith all along the line. They've threatened to remove back pay and they've done that. Um, and, and of course, you know, with a, a pay freeze of three years, you know that you're dealing with a, an employer that is completely belligerent. And we know that um, Cube has form uh, in, that, in the way it treats its workforce all around the country. In, in Newcastle, they started off negotiations just recently threatening a 10% pay cut. Because I, I guess people need to realise that uh, this is happening at uh, Cube, but uh, the boss class, if I be as crude as that to say it, have been orchestrating the, uh, the attacks on uh, the waterfront mm-hmm. across the country, use, and the federal government has been in cahoots, I'd say, and with a specific... Uh, um, attempt to destroy the MUA. It, I mean, it seems to be a concerted effort. They're not acting as individual um, businesses. They're actually acting in a concerted a- action. That's, that's exactly right. Yes, I, I completely agree with you there. Uh, the MUA has recently amalgamated with the CFMEU and that's been opposed by, by all sections of the ruling class from the Liberal Party to the Australian Minerals and Metals Association you know, the Australian Chamber of Commerce, et cetera, et cetera, they're all lined up to, to smash the MUA. Um, so, yes, and, and 
there there is no such thing as a, a good and wonderful capitalist that just gives you wages from on high. Everything has to be struggled for. And that's certainly the case on the waterfront with a belligerent employer like Cube. Everything that's been won there has been um, won through bitter struggle. And, and I don't think today is any exception. I mean, we face uh, a ruling class that is completely embittered towards its, um, towards its own workforce. And it's shameful. It's shameful the level of inequality that this country sees now. And yet every major dispute is um, we face lockouts. Yeah. Uh, and yet when, when we go into a dispute, we, it's very difficult to take the initiative and simply take strike action through a simple democratic show of hands. Everything gets channeled through this Fair Work Commission, which um, completely subordinates industrial action to a very bureaucratic process, removing the initiative and democratic impulses of workers. Hmm. Yeah, well, there you go. And uh, so it's it's actually a very uh, hairy sort of position for all the workers. Uh, can you tell us the process hmm. of uh, getting to this point of... Uh, uh, the shutdown, which is going to be Saturday and Sunday, isn't it? Yes. Well, I mean, basically the, the process has been long-running in that it's it's come to a head where Cuba are refusing to budge and have simply um, threatened to remove conditions. And now, of course, they're threatening to terminate our agreement and that escalates the dispute. We have no choice but to strike. Um, we, we're left with simply no option. We... We can't afford to simply go back on the current conditions, let alone be thrown back onto the award, which would give us a 40% pay cut. So um, is there a picket? What, what's uh, the process for you guys, the workers? What's going to happen for you guys over the weekend? Are you going to take we'll a well-earned a rest or <laughs> are you having a protest? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's, there's <laughs> no rest for those in struggle. Uh, we're, we'll be um, at the gates of at um, the Marat Terminal, which is Web Dock West, uh, from 3pm Saturday. Um, there is a number of ships in this weekend carrying automotive cargo. Um, we'll be protesting. Uh, it won't be a hard picket because the, the Fair Work Act simply doesn't allow for that, and already the MUA are facing uh, a number of fines and have been threatened with um, $100 million in damages over a dispute at um, BICT Terminal, which is at Webdock East. So the MUA is in a fight for its life all around, and, and this is another dispute that adds to that. So would you like the public to support you by going down there? Absolutely. Absolutely. I encourage all to bring your family, friends, pets down to... Uh, the Marat Terminal at 3pm on Saturday, that's at 46 Karinga Way, Port Melbourne. Um, and yeah, absolutely come down. Any support, it would be welcome. And we certainly need that. Um, it's been a long time since we've been in struggle. This is also a workforce that's had a very high turnover. So a lot of people there aren't used to these sort of struggles. They don't have a high level of union consciousness. So any solidarity or support that the community can give will be gladly received and will certainly strengthen our morale and our determination to see this through. Thanks for talking to me, Andrew, and I'll see you on Saturday. Yeah, absolutely. Make sure, make sure you come down and 
uh, we want the MUA to be here for a long time. So MUA, here to stay. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Bye. Well, we had a meeting on the site and uh, Robeson was introduced to the workers and he spoke about his relationship with the workers in other countries uh, because he was a, a prominent figure in the international working class movement. He must know something, but don't say nothing, he just keeps rolling, he keeps on rolling along. He don't plant taters, he don't plant cotton, then that plants and he's soon forgotten, but old man river, he just keeps rolling along. You and me, we sweat and strain. Body all aching and racked with pain. Tote that barge, lift that bale. Show a little grit and your land's in jail. But I keeps laughing instead of crying. I must keep fighting until I'm dying. And old man river. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and that was for the Wharfie, and uh, the old Wharfie. Uh, he particularly asked for more stuff to do with Paul Robeson and it was completely fitting because uh, the uh, dispute that's going on down at Cube, people should support and uh, it's uh, there's uh, this attack on the uh, seafaring folk around uh, Australia uh, in the guise of uh, uh, productivity but which is really just a full-on attack on workers and their union uh, has been going on for a number of years, ever since the Turnbull government came in and they uh, destroyed the uh, cabotage laws where they uh, were um, uh, where local uh, seafaring uh, routes were run by local people, uh, which is a traditional thing to happen around the world in all countries. No, not in Australia. Can't happen. Can't have people working collectively. Can't have people actually having a decent decent life and a decent living. Uh, it's all got to be for the almighty dollar for the uh, international companies. Uh, people are holding the line. Uh, that address again, 3pm, uh, Marat, uh, uh, Web West, 46 Claringa Way. Uh I've got a little piece from um, Joe Toscano's memorial for Alan, uh, his wife, Alan Jose. They've uh, set up a thing called Alan Jose Memorial Foundation. You can find it on uh, the the web and you can contribute. It's for a... uh, a um, scholarship for for uh, an Indigenous artist, a female Indigenous artist, to uh, ensure that uh, Ellen's wishes uh, are per- go into prepar- uh, a perpetuity. And uh, they, it was down at a place called Herring Island. If you don't know about Herring Island, you should have a look for it. It's a, a lovely day trip uh, during the summer. You can catch a punt, take, pay your two bucks, 
pay the ferryman, go across to the man-made lake, uh, island, and have a barbecue and look at uh, the sculpture park. But uh, we'll leave uh, uh, Joe to explain a little bit more about the history of Herring Island and uh, also uh, Alan's uh, fabulous sculpture that's out there. When sewage came in in the 1890s, it solved the problem of typhoid, but it didn't still solve the uh, flooding problem, so this island was created to prevent flooding in Richmond. Now, then it was taken over by the Scouts, and then in the early 1970s it was given over to the Friends of Herring Island, and it was basically a wasteland. And and the uh, role of the Friends of the Herring Island was to actually uh, remove all the non-native vegetation from the island. So everything you see now may not be indigenous to the area, but it is indigenous to the country. Yes, they are working today on the other side. In 1996, one of Mr Kennett's initiatives, one of his good initiatives... OK. We're all standing. Yeah. Yeah. Was, was to uh, turn this island into an environmental sculpture park and a number of artists were invited and commissioned to do sculptures. They, there was no... Uh, the only uh, thing that they had to do was to be environmentally friendly, had to fit in with the environment. That was the only criteria they had to follow. Now, Ellen um, was invited uh, by the Wurundjeri and uh, Joy Murphy, who's the elder from Wurundjeri, to actually do the sculpture. And basically the sculpture is, to a significant degree, is her idea. It's called Tendurum which means meeting place. Now, the Kulin Nation was formed from five distinct groups, the Bunurong, the uh, Wawarong, the uh, Wafarong, the Jajadarong, and the... Uh, I always get this one wrong. The what? The Tanarong, the Tanarong. So the five distinct groups, and they stretched from Maui and uh, Wilson's Promontory across past Geelong, right up past Bendigo, including Ballarat, right up near to Benalla and Shepparton. So it was a huge area that the Kulin Nation uh, was was involved in, uh, lived. They lived here for 40 to 60,000 years. So the idea was to turn off your phone. (laughs) They don't count because they're not here. So the idea... so, So the idea was that the five groups would meet on a regular basis for corroborees, which were spiritual uh, issues, marriages, trade, all the things that normal human beings do, all right? doesn't matter what your cultural setting is, it's a meeting of, of people. And their languages were very similar. So the idea of Tendarum is meeting place. And those of you who are a little bit familiar with Melbourne's history will know that the meeting place for the Kulin Nation is where the Botanic Garden is currently. And um, so the sculpture is meeting place. Now, all the materials it's made out of, and it was made in 1997, are local materials from Kulin Nation Territory. There's Castlemaine Slate. There's greenstone from Mount William, which isn't far from here. Now, now Mount William greenstone, it was a precious material because it was used for axe heads and they were very strong and prestigious axe heads and they were traded all through Australia you can even find them in the Gulf of uh, 
up in the Carpentaria, up in the Torres Strait, in the West Australia, New South Wales, Queensland. Mount William Greenstone was a very tradable commodity, so that's been incorporated in the sculpture. Now the and we've got redwood. Now the the redwood, uh, Ellen carved with a chainsaw initially, and then uh, and then with, with uh, sandpaper, Bunjil, who's basically the spirit of this land, the wedge tail eagle, a very important uh, totem figure. So Bunjil's on top, then you've got the Castlemaine slate, and then inside, around it, you've got five pieces of greenstone, and at the bottom you have five rocks. And those five rocks were brought across from each part of the Kula Nation, each group, the Bunarong, the Wafarong, the Wanarong, the Tanarong, and the Jajadarong, they all, all, all bought a stone from their traditional area to actually incorporate into the sculpture. When you go there, you'll see that stone. Now, this pebble is the Yarra. It signifies the Yarra. Because the Yarra was common to a lot of these people, right? So that you've got the Yarra, you've got Bunjil, you've got the Castlemaine Slate, you've got the Greenstone, you've got the five stones uh, from the five different sections of the Kula Nation. Now, you know, Ellen's always had a sense of humour. You may not believe this, but she did have a sense of humour. And when she created this sculpture, the idea was, as satire and irony, on the monuments which were created to the colonisers. And when you look at the monuments around Victoria and Australia that are created to the colonisers, they've got that shape mm. they've got the shape so this is a whimsical part of this sculpture she's actually using that shape to highlight the indigenous uh, history most people when they read stuff about this won't mention that because they're not aware of the irony involved and that was the irony of putting the castle main slate putting the eagle bunjil on top of the slate so it's like a traditional monument to a colonist who's discovered the land as they wanted around, you know, although people have been here for 60,000 years. So this is her joke on those monuments. And you're the first ones to have heard this officially. Okay, so off you go and enjoy yourselves. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen and you're listening to 3CR. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when those sinister threats to liberty, freedom and democracy, evil Russia and evil China have been in the news. Bad news, a bad news week. The opposite of good news week. It's good news week. Someone dropped a bomb somewhere, contaminating atmosphere. It's good news week. Sure, the song was ironic, but we know that if the good guys, us or our very close friends, drop a bomb somewhere and contaminate the atmosphere, that is good news. But if the bad guys, them, the other, drop a bomb, contaminate bad news, bad, bad news. Leading us to contemplate how devious evil Russia and evil China are. See, the threat, the real threat is to the freedom bit of liberty, freedom and the freedom of capital, which is real freedom, what liberty, freedom and democracy is all about. How devious. Back in the last Cold War days, we had to hate them. They were a major threat to our way of life because they were communist commies. Now in the present Cold War, we have to hate them. They are a major threat to our way of life because 
they are capitalist. How devious is that? But how stupid, evil Russia. Fancy attacking a double agent in a good, good country, the good guys, with a nerve agent which can be traced straight back to... So stupid, we could almost think maybe someone wanted to make it appear that, but but no. That's not the sort of devious spy versus spy subterfuge the good guys would even think of, is it? And anyway, any doubts, any suspicions we might have were evaporated by the good guys declaring there is no doubt evil capitalist Russia did it. Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, backed up by good Germany, good France, good, 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 US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, and confirmed as absolute when the US OBS voice of reason at the UN of the US of the UN of the world, Nikki Haley, Liberty, Freedom and, announced there was... No doubt, evil Russia had been responsible. Which, coming from the US of, if history means anything, means there has to be a hell of a lot of doubt. Is it as no doubt as weapons of mass destruction, of bristling with nuclear warheads and of plotting to invade every good guy country in the, in the whole world simultaneously, Nicky? There is no doubt it is as no doubt. So clearly, listener, there is no doubt the evil Rusky capitalist did it. Sure, evil Russia may have done it, but given the history of these things, to put it bluntly, that we can't believe a word they say, the cynic in me isn't prepared to take MI6s or the CIAs or Theresa's or Donald's or even the ever-logical and reasonable Nicky's word for it. Back here, where True Blue Aussie also has no doubt, for what it's worth, the socialists have threatened to wipe out handouts to great corporate shareholders who pay no tax whatever and therefore deserve a handout from other people's taxes. Handing the Modesty of the Week award to socialist would-be economic guru Chris Bowen to Capital for declaring, frankly, we have the courage to adopt this policy. And how it must have abraded Chris's innate modesty to admit, frankly, the courage. But sadly, we quickly discovered not giving handouts to shareholders who don't pay any tax in the first place is class warfare. The politics of envy from no less reliable and respected sources as the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin. Labor launches new class war. 11.4 billion tax grab. And the Minister for something to do with the freedom of capital, Matthias Rotten Tudor, who said the evil socialists were stealing from mums and dads. Well, yes, we can be pretty sure many of those corporate shareholders who don't pay any tax at all and therefore deserve a handout from other people's taxes are mums and dads. Lord Rupert's a dad several times over, much to the chagrin, we suspect, of his older offspring. And Matthias is a dad, a father, and even knows abortion is a sin. At this point, the phrase, the father of all lies, springs to mind, although I've got no idea why. But amid all the concern by the filthy rich for pensioners and self-funded super retirees, news slipped out that some beneficiaries of the handout receive $80,000 plus from our taxes. That is, presumably filthy rich non-taxpayers with lots of filthy rich investments cop 80 grand without putting one cent into the public purse. Matthias and co, amid accusations of class warfare, 
Oh, if only, listener. Politics of Envy described the policy as Labor's big tax grab. Now, so, Matthias, this tax grab, the people now paying no tax who are the ones affected by this, how much tax will they be paying after the big tax grab? After the Labor Socialist Class Warfare Politics of Envy big tax grab, they will be paying no tax. Uh, so what's the problem? The problem is obvious. It's a Socialist Party big tax grab. I'll leave you to work that one out, listener. I'm totally lost. But, well, we know if class warfare and the politics of envy are being waged, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Short and Ambition, and the courageous class warrior Chris Bow and the Capitol would be leading the charge. That man of principle, little Billy, saw the light on the Adani the Planet fossil polluter issue from the moment the member for Batman resigned and may well keep that light in view until the clock strikes six this afternoon. We did see to seek to clarify his position. Little Billy, just checking to clarify your position on Adani the Planet. Certainly. Um, in which state? Uh, well, the whole country. Sorry, can't do. You, you must be more specific. Obviously, I can't answer your question unless I know which state you're talking about. Well, just as obviously, that has clarified his position. Uh, but little Billy, you also said you wouldn't tear up any decisions to approve the mine. That shows I'm a man of principle. So you oppose it, but won't oppose it. Well, what good is that? Ask me that after six o'clock. News this week that little Billy has been warned by some dedicated socialists his road to Damascus, sorry, road to Batman conversion may cost the socialists key Her Most Gracious Majesty's land seats up north. Uh, dedicated socialists, uh, you'll support a fossil polluter just to win seats? It's tactics. We're not sure you'd understand tactics. Look, once we win those seats and become the government, we'll be able to implement our strong anti-pollution environmental policies, including forcing Adani the planet to close if it flukes obtaining the finances it needs. Uh, well, well, no, we can't do that. Little Billy has promised to respect all approvals, but we'll be able to implement our other strong anti-pollution environmental policies. Oh, like a carbon price on big polluters. Oh, well, well, that may be a little difficult, given that big polluters and Lord Rupert of Wapping would run a saturation socialist carbon tax grab campaign against a carbon price. But, but that's a small price for being able to implement our other strong anti-pollution environmental policies. Well, such as... We're glad you asked. Good question. We have this big, big policy to encourage every household in the country, every household, and that's a lot of households, every household to ensure everybody turns off the lights when they leave the room. Imagine how much CO2 that would keep out of the atmosphere. Good point. Probably about as much hot air as their policy. The big supremo in true blue Aussie of Adani the Planet, Jaya Kumar Janakaraj, the real name, won't play with it, this week described the little bit of opposition to the mine as a flood of misinformation, a bit like the flood of pollution for which the company was recently fined, a bit of pocket money, and informed us, every day our business is working to balance the need to provide affordable energy with the need to reduce emissions intensity. 
We are at the front line helping to solve these global dilemmas. Good on them. Congratulations for their fight against climate change and emissions. Although we, we might have thought, silly us, that one way to assist in reducing emissions intensity would be not to open a coal mine. Amid poor caring employers so upset over slow wages growth and the evil ACTU has applied for a 7.2% minimum wage increase. And we'd think caring employers would be cheering, but no, it was a smelling salts job. Such a raise would risk job security. Wage growth is not the way to address the major problem of slow wage growth. Senate former shock jock Darren Lyncham fell out of a cab. I only had two drinks and may, according to reports, may have suffered brain trauma, but how would you know? Race relations in True Blue Aussie and South Apartheid. Here, the Mineral Profits Council wants the Native Title Act changed to provide certainty, certainty being so important to the greatest little economic order of them all. We must have the certainty that we can rip off. In this case, we must have the certainty these blacks won't be able to steal our land. And finally, on people suffering brain trauma, the Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats and home affairs, as opposed to barnacles away from home affairs, Constable Peter Duffer displayed his true compassionate colours by offering to accept all these poor South Apartheid white farmers in danger of losing the land they stole, because we have a responsibility to protect people in danger. Unlike, as people have been pointing out, non-white Tamils, for instance, whom we deport back to non-danger in the land stolen from them. And Constable Pete means to change the law to prevent people using the law to fight their deportation. And direct quote, who needs embellishment in this situation? The government, Constable Dutton said, is not going to be taken for idiots. Oh... How do we respond to that? Good morning. Hey, y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown, and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we've got Don Sutherland on the line. G'day, Don. How are you? Hi, Annie, and hello to all your listeners. And uh, you did you get to go to the launch in Sydney of uh, the ACTU's uh, campaign of uh, The Rules Are Broken, by any chance? Uh, no, I didn't, but I have been paying attention to it and discussing it with uh, a number of uh, mates around the union movement. Um, and... Uh, how encouraging is it? I think it's terrific. Yeah, tell us uh, more. Tell us more because they're in the midst of a, a wages uh, uh, campaign at the moment. So uh, tell us more about uh, what the effect has been of that uh, no rules launch. Well, I think I think what we've got is the launch of an advertising campaign uh, that has two very special features. Firstly, it coincides with the period in which the Fair Work Commission annual wage review is going through a very important phase in the formal process. 
And then secondly, what is envisaged at the end of that six-week period are uh, uh, union days of action against the broken rules in May. And, of course, that all happens in the context of the usual union movement activity around May Day. So I think uh, they are two quite special things, and there is a link uh, between the annual wage review that sets new, uh, or doesn't, according to the decision of the Fair Work Commission, sets new uh, minimum rates pay, and therefore uh, has a major impact on the living standards of those who are on the lowest rates and including on those who are having to deal with the problem of wage theft because they are being paid illegally by their employer at below the minimum rate. There was a pretty limp response from the uh, Chamber of Commerce regarding the ACTU's uh, uh, advertising campaign. Uh, they ma- they're trying to make out... They've obviously employed some uh, communications experts and in their press release they were putting out this notion that uh, actually the ACTU aren't the friend of the workers. It's a bit like that campaign down in the uh, in Li- uh, Liberal Party land down in Tasmania who went returning the Liberals where the uh, campaign had stickers saying vote Liberal, save jobs, vote Liberal. I mean, how long well, can the delusion last? Yes, well, uh, it's not surprising that the Australian, Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry should try and do that because what it's trying to do is uh, connect to the feeling, the uncomfortable feeling that a lot of workers who are in vulnerable positions and who are... Um, uh, very keen to be in a job uh, and have a sense uh, of gratitude that they have been employed and uh, not, and therefore the the importance of getting a job uh, connects to a certain level of gratitude. But of course that's contradictory because workers who are supplicant in that way are vulnerable to uh, much higher rates of exploitation and each worker who is sort of grateful in a way for having a job at some point or another has to deal in their own mind with the appalling treatment that they receive uh, by uh, powerful employers. Even those employers who are small business employers have great power to lord it over uh, the workers' And I, I see this every time I have a cup of coffee in a cafe nearby every day or the several several ones that I frequent. And the behaviour sometimes of the person who manages and owns uh, the cafe towards the people who deliver the coffee and the sandwiches is, is appalling. Uh, and yet those workers have a sense in their head of gratitude. So that's how it connects. It's now, interesting. The, however, the facts oh, sorry. These, the, the facts are these. The... Uh, Firstly, the ACTU has presented its claim, as it is required to do, to the Fair Work Commission for the annual wage increase. And its claim is for $50 a week increase, which is 7.2%. And they are claiming that that should apply 
that increase should apply across all the minimum rate and all of the minimum rates in each award. The Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, to whom you refer, is one of the employer groups that who has also presented their proposal, and it is for a 1.9% increase, which uh, translates to 11 or 12 dollars uh, an hour. So there we have the contours, the broad ambit of the struggle that is in front of us over the next couple of months about whether we will strike a blow against rising inequality or not. I always find it really fascinating that uh, people who are so exploitative uh, really don't like to be seen as such. So they put forward a a disparaging low uh, amount of uh, increase because they've already on record to say that... uh, uh, that this record uh, suppression of wages at the moment is uh, unsatisfactory. Why is it unsatisfactory? Well, the downtrodden no longer have money to buy the products that these people wish to foist upon us. <laughs> I mean, anybody... Well, yeah, sorry. If your own wealth is determined by how much you can get away with exploiting workers, then it's essential you convince the workers that they're not being exploited and that you are their friend. That's exactly right. And it's it's significant that that is is sort of a a central idea about how the employing class uh, rules in our society. It's called, it's a thing called hegemony, as many of your listeners will know about. And it's, hegemony is essential from the point of view of a worker. It's where the thinking of the boss gets inside your own head and infects your own way of understanding what's happening to you in the society. It's, so, um, I'm reading it. Uh, I'm reading a book at the moment that's set in Naples, uh, contemporary really, oh, well, it lead, from 1944 onwards, and it's got a line in it because, it, it, you know, as in the 60s, it was a type of time of huge change right across Europe uh, in the West, and it's got a line in it about these people who are working this awful sausage fa- factory that uh, the one the one person that was there who just really needed a job, she was the only one who didn't uh, think that uh, needing, believing that you needed a, needed to work was coupled with humiliation. <laughs> yeah, and I just well, jumped right out, out at me because that's exactly what you're talking about. Well, the, the, the essential uh, uh, point about that, and this is very relevant right now, is that um, sitting below this mental state of being um, willing to allow the boss exploit you is not far below the surface in millions of workers is a resistance to that as well and that 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 secondary if you like that secondary thought in certain circumstances can rise to the front and become the dominant thought that says no i don't i'm dissatisfied with how i am being exploited and i'm going to start fighting back against it and eventually that begins to uh, the, that idea of resist of defiance and resistance takes over the subordination idea, and that's where we are at right now in Australia. That most of the 2.3 million people plus 
who are dependent upon the annual wage review, are somewhere in between not liking what's uh, accepting what's being done to them, and at the same time not liking it and trying to find a way to get a better deal. And we're on the cusp of an opportunity to turn that into a much bigger mobilisation that we have had on wages for decades. Well, you see, one of the problems is that at the moment it's getting to the point that people who are working extremely hard to maintain a reasonable life with a family, say, uh, are finding it very difficult to actually make ends meet. So it gets to a point where uh, it all starts to fall apart. And unless you decide that it's all your own fault because of all your own weaknesses and uh, insufficiencies, if you finally realise that... Uh, I mean, Well, it reminds me of being at one of the homeless speak-outs and a man was there and he, he took the mic and talked for a bit and uh, his story was that... And, you know, he was all over the place, really, and he was talking about how... Uh, he had was was he worked and worked and worked. He was divorced. His children grew up, and he gave them. He felt compelled to give them his uh, superannuation for them to be able to uh, to uh, have a house, I guess, or whatever. And uh, he himself is now on the streets. I mean, yeah. that's basically. I mean, how, that was his Yeah, that was his story. Yeah, was his story. And, and the point was that, uh, that you can't come back from that. Financially speaking. Well, you see, this is where, once again, you know, we've got six weeks of intense advertising activity uh, by the ACTU to arouse people's awareness, arouse the level of informal, almost clandestine discussion, worker to worker all over the place, that it is time to take defiant action against the broken rule. So you have that six weeks of elevated discussion happening. And this is a big challenge. This is a huge challenge for the middle levels of the union movement. I think Sally McManus has set this up pretty well. We have six weeks of intense and intensifying discussion and every single enterprise bargaining dispute should be an opportunity to talk about the common claim around the national wage case so the advertising campaign connects to the broken rules around enterprise bargaining but also connects to the broken rules around national wage reviews. Then in May, we have the opportunity to take common collective action in the foreshadowed days of action to put material, physical pressure on the powers that be, including the Fair Work Commission panel that's reviewing the wages in the formal process, that this time around we want an increase that starts the reversal of inequality. And the ACTU, I think this is, again, I think quite important, that this the ACTU's objective is to get the minimum rate to about two-thirds of the median rate. And if they wanted to do that in one year, that would be an $80 a week increase. That's $30 more than they're, they're seeking. So what they see is that this year is year one. 
And everything we do about learning how to mobilise around the annual wage review this year becomes a platform to be able to do it better and with more power next year and the year after. Well, it's, so we have it, a, it's interesting, Don. At a start of a three-year strategy. Yeah. Well, oh, that's sorry, I interrupted a big point. Uh, three-year strategy. Uh, it's interesting because the thing that occurs to me is that every time uh, this is in a process. I wait for the Australian to have a banner headline talking about how, and the age and all the others, have this uh, banner headline talking about, oh, tut, 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 you know, they're asking this unrealistic amount of money and, you know, the world will fall apart, you know, chicken little, you know, it's unreasonable. And so everybody looks at this amount of money and say, oh, it's unreasonable, it's unreasonable, and then this paltry amount is agreed upon. And this happens every year. Uh, and so I'm waiting for that particular better head- headline to come. But what needs to be pointed out, no, but what needs to be pointed out is what they're asking for, the $50 as opposed to the $80, just shows you how much people are being ripped off. I, I, I think that, that's a very good point. But it takes us to the middle levels of the union movement. See, last year, the middle levels of the union movement were a big factor in the campaign to win marriage equality. They were huge. Well, that's true. They did so many good things to fight that particular form of discrimination. They had passion. They had clarity. They educated straight workers who were unsure about the issue. They gave confidence to and strength that was much needed to gay people uh, uh, to be able to come out and campaign in, in the face of great difficulty. They normalise. So yeah. But the question remains, can they do the same thing, the middle levels of the union movement, many of whom you would call millennials, can they deliver the same thing in a struggle around economic exploitation? And I think there is a big question mark over them at the moment. I don't think I think they're capable of learning it, but at the moment I think they do not have a strong grasp of how exploitation works and how unions by campaigning in common, not in separate entities, but in common, uh, can change the rules about how wages, the wages-profit relationship works. That's pretty pessimistic. Uh, how, how can no, this change? I, no, no, it's quite the opposite. I'm trying to say that right now they're not good at the exploitation stuff. They're very good in the middle levels of the union movement at discrimination stuff. They have a good grasp of that, but they have some distance to go. And I say they're very much capable of it. They've shown it, really. They're capable of learning about economic exploitation at a much deeper level. So what what are you saying, that that they've been waylaid by identity politics? uh, I I think... I don't call it identity politics. I'd call it postmodern politics. Cool. Okay. I don't care what you call it. Focus on particular forms of discrimination. Yeah. uh, Without looking for and understanding the common exploitation that all victims of discrimination experience. Yep, okay. And so they lose the opportunity to bind together the different forms. But the opportunity is right in front of us. 
Yeah. And I think it's been quite well set up, and it's a, an opportunity to make a big change in the way in which the middle levels of the movement work. Uh, I think the leadership, I know there are contradictions, and some leaders actually don't like <laughs> what has been set up by the ACTU because it's a bit of, it puts a lot of pressure on the ALP as well. Yeah. Uh, but well, so it should. It's all set up, and if the lessons that were applied, the, the uh, learnings that were applied in the struggle for marriage equality are applied to a struggle around economic exploitation, then we have a real potential to build year by year, ultimately to a solid reversal of the trend to inequality that's going on. And incidentally, for your listeners, uh, I heard the other day a wonderful uh, podcast from a bloke called Richard Wolf, who did a review. This is it's called Economic Update. So if you Google Richard Wolf, with that's with two Fs, uh, Economic Update, you can listen to his March fifteenth. I think it's the March fifteenth edition. There is a terrific summary of what's going on with economic inequality around the world. And Australia is part of the problem. Okay. Partly, we have to finish this. We have to finish. We have to finish now because we've come to the end of it. But uh, thanks for that advice, and I'm sure the listeners will be keen to actually follow that up. Okay. Well, I think there's some very positive things happening, but a lot of it still lies in the realm of potential. The thing is set up, and. Can I just finish by saying yeah. there is lots of information available. The ACTU submission is 215 pages. You can read the first 22 pages in half an hour. That's the summary with all the material. There's some great stuff. And just on gender inequality and wages, mm-hmm. the ACTU points out how the broken rules around the annual wage review make it very tough for them to use the annual wage review to close the gap on wages. But their submission goes on to deal with the issue, but uh, they uh, they point out just how broken the rules are on that front as well. Okay. All right. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you soon, Don. Thank well, you very much. Very, very interesting. I hope we can follow up soon on this. It's incredibly important for our movement. See, talk to you soon. Yeah, Don Sutherland, always interesting. Uh, we uh, come to the end of the program. Uh, we went to the Coonerhan Gallery down at uh, Sydney Road and we went back to the 1970s onwards with uh, Wendy Black. We uh, reminded you that there's a big thing going on down at uh, uh, Web Dock West uh, at Marat Terminal, uh, 46 Kalaringa Way, uh, you can go down there at three today and support the uh, people demonstration, the MUA, outside that uh, uh, terminal. They're uh, going to be on strike for the next two days. And uh, we moved on to talk to Don. We're going to leave with uh, Dumb Things, a great version of Paul Kelly's uh, song. And uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Strangers to the show I'm the one who should be 
them dumb things. This going out to my brothers down there in Dundale. Dealing with that disaster that them guards are there and not jail. Thinking we getting that welfare, huh? Thinking we getting that healthcare, huh? Think about if it was your son. Now think about sending some help there. Yeah, what's dumber than that, mate? What's dumber than dressing up blackface? What's dumber than doing it knowing that hurts and don't even work to make that change? Let's go! In the middle, in the middle. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.